For those of you who are new here, if we haven't been coming consistently, we have been uh, camped out in the book of 1 Peter, and last week we finished it, and so kind of before we launch into 2 Peter, we're just going to take a little bit of a break um, and, and, and talk about something, uh, something else for a change. So Matthew 9, we're going to be looking at four verses, Matthew 9, 35. I'll be reading from the ESV today, and this is what it says. It says, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So let's, let's pray that God gives us just hearts and ears to hear and understand his word this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you are a firm foundation. Thank you that you have given us your word for us to understand. Would you increase our desire and our capacity to take that in, to respond to it? God, help my words to be clear, Holy Spirit. Help me to add nothing to it that it does not clearly state. Jesus, so we humbly submit to what you want to do here in this place. In your name, amen. So to give a little context of what's been going on, because when you pick a handful of verses, we, we don't really know the story, what's happening, what, what context, who is being spoken to. But in Matthew here, this is a gospel account written by a real individual who has real insights, and is telling these stories for a specific purpose. Some of the things in Matthew that he's trying to highlight is the authority of Jesus. And he, that's where we find the Sermon on the Mount, where it shows the teachings of Jesus. And it says that he spoke with authority. And they marveled. This, this guy has a lot of authority for somebody who just teaches. And he spent a lot of time showing what Jesus taught. And in the last two chapters, Matthew shifted from the teaching moving on to the miracles of Jesus, kind of one after another, these little motifs, if you will, of individual miracles, kind of showing that Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm, authority over sickness and death. And some of these, he just goes one to the next, and we can kind of read through these and just miss the bigger meaning and and intent and purpose. Um, but, But in this, it kind of summarizes in these last few verses. So we've been dealing with how Jesus has been having compassion, how he's been doing acts of mercy, what we call maybe social justice, and that how he's been healing people and teaching. And this is a summary in verse 35, and it says that when Jesus went through all the cities and villages, he was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So kind of a summary over the last few chapters, but I want to key in on a couple principles. This is where we're going today, so you guys kind of have a road map and understand what, what the information I'm trying to convey. We're going to have a doctrinal framework. What is the gospel? What is the kingdom of God? And kind of prop that up so we have a better understanding, so when we move to the prescriptive, how we are to respond, what is the command of God, we're being informed by a transcendent truth something that we can rely on, not just something that we feel or throw out there, but this, this word of God is a story 
the Bible here is a continuing story from beginning to end where everything weaves together and we need to understand how that works. And lastly, kind of how we tie it down. How do we respond to it? What are some potential pitfalls that we might have? So it says here that Jesus taught the gospel of the kingdom. Now we've all, if we've been saved or been around church for any, any amount of time, we're familiar with the idea of the gospel. We've probably heard that. Through our culture, it's kind of been a popular buzzword. Gospel everything, gospel-centered this, gospel-centered music, gospel-centered community groups. And while it has weight and meaning, sometimes we kind of lose understanding of what's truly being communicated, that this is a story. That this is, these are historical facts. It is something that has actually happened. Uh, another thing is sometimes th- the word, the kingdom of God, we, we don't quite understand because for salvation... Primarily in Western context, we view it as an individual thing. I have been saved. Jesus saved me from something. And why those things are absolutely true and important, there's this broader idea taught in Scripture, kind of a communitive collective of this kingdom, this thing moving forth. So what is the kingdom of God? If you were to be asked, what, what is the kingdom? What is the gospel of the kingdom of God? We need to have an understanding of it because it's spoken of quite frequently in Scripture. So the kingdom of God, if I was going to simply put it, would be this. If we think about just the basic terms of a kingdom, it indicates that somebody's ruling in a place or a space, right? So if we follow this whole narrative that fits together, beginning to end, we have this idea of God who ruled in what we would term as the heavens. We're told that before creation, God was ruling and reigning with all authority, And in creation, he created the earth, and he created mankind to help him rule, to kind of co-lead this sphere that we currently live in. And part of it was the kingdom of God, this idea of God being with us, this congruent theme that we see. Emmanuel, God with us. God, before sin entered the world, that God actually ruled and reigned along with mankind. He, we could be face-to-face with our creator in his kingdom, But because we're told sin entered the world, man rebelled against God's authority, against his rule that sin entered, and man was separated from God. So God, way back in the beginning, said, hey, I have a plan and I have a way to fix this. This is a familiar gospel narrative that I will take it upon myself to deal with the problem, the problem of sin, to deal with this problem of separation. So when when Jesus shows up, he begins to say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, God, throughout all the story of Israel, it was God with us through Israel in the tabernacle, the presence of God living there, that God said, I'm going to choose a people, and through these people, I'm going to come and I'm going to bless all nations. So to simply put it, is that the kingdom of heaven at this place, at this particular time in this story, it is the good news that in Jesus the kingdom is breaking into the world like never before. We, we view this as the Messiah. In, this, in the Jewish co- cultural context, they would say the Messiah. They were expecting this person to show up to, to set up an actual kingdom, to rule and reign, to fix all the problems. But what happened? When, when Jesus showed up and began to preach this message, hey, the kingdom of heaven's at hand, they understood it to be like, is he speaking of the Messiah, the one who is foretold, the one who was promised. 
And the people did not like his message. They misunderstood it. What they viewed as how a kingdom should be run, that somebody should show up with power, with authority, should overthrow the ruling governments, should right every wrong. Jesus showed up and his message and his acts were quite different. If we look at, think about the Sermon on the Mount, he taught things that were completely countercultural to our understanding, to, this, to the society at large. He taught us to love our enemies, not to merely exercise force. He taught us to seek peace, that there's strength in being weak, and there's power in humility. So these ideas and these teachings that he taught were completely against the common understanding of what this culture would understand. And where we sit in this story, we're farther along. At this point, when Jesus is telling these things, he has not gone to the cross, he's not died, he's not resurrected, but where we sit, we even have a more complete story of this, that Jesus eventually allowed these people to kill him. because of his teachings, because of who he claimed to be, and they could not stand that. But on his death, death could not hold him because he lived a sinless life. Death had no claim on him. And he was resurrected. And because of that, he he is now in heaven ruling and reigning, and we are still in the middle of the story. We're waiting for this kingdom of God, the idea of restoration to come about. So we are still stuck in the middle. This isn't just one thing that was completely done once and for all, where yes, the pinnacle of it and the apex has, that, the, that through the works and acts of Jesus Christ, our sin can be dealt with. And this, and this is the idea of the kingdom. Um, and Jesus spoke more about this in the, than he did anything else. But, but this idea of a kingdom would lead to some questions that we need to ask ourselves. Because what is a kingdom without a king? Yes, we maybe have used the terminology, but do we honestly think that, hey, somebody actually rules and reigns with authority? Who are the people that he rules over? Who are his people? Who are his subjects? What are the teachings? What are the commands that we have to deal with? And and that's something that we have to kind of... to understand that when we believed in the message of the gospel, what Jesus had done for us, we have literally been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Our citizenship is not of the world, but it is that of heaven, where somebody reigns with power and authority and has claim over our lives. In Peter, when we read the, the when we went through the book of 1 Peter, we learned that one of the major themes were that we're not citizens. We're just travelers passing by in this world, but we are actually citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So we need to live and align our thoughts, our actions, our deeds, and carry this message for this purpose, and that aligns with kingdom principles. An easy way to summarize the kingdom um, is this, is that the kingdom of heaven is God's reign, through his people, over his place. That would be the simplistic version of this if we wanted to kind of throw out a very simple statement of what the kingdom of God is. God's rule through his people, which would be us, 
over his place, which one day he will redeem. And when we see that Jesus taught and he did these acts, he was teaching us and he was setting up examples for us that we have a responsibility with this message, with this teaching of the gospel of the kingdom. So it would do well for us to kind of of ask the question, what is our responsibility with the gospel, with the gospel of the kingdom? And I kind of highlighted three things that are important for us to rightly interact with and to be stewards of the gospel. One is proclamation. That's usually the one that we just kind of reduce it down to. Oh, the gospel is something, it's a message. The gospel itself means the good news. Even by definition, it is a message, but I think there's more to that. Why we are stewards of this message when we become citizens and held responsible for it, at some point we have to speak it, we have to proclaim it, but there is more. So the first one would be our proclamation of the gospel. The second one would be the preservation of the gospel, to preserve it. And I would say that that entails doctrine, theology, sound teaching, refuting wrong teaching, Because if we look at church history, there has been a thread where people come in with their own ideas and thoughts trying to pervert or pollute or even dilute what the gospel is and its power. That we are to understand this. We are to be skilled at using this. We are to be understanding it more and more. So the preservation of the gospel. And then thirdly is the display of the gospel where our lives actually begin to reflect the teachings and principles of what Jesus taught. That every day, because of the implications of what Jesus did and where we stand in him, we begin to live. We begin to love people. We begin to take and have a compassion towards other people. So this, in short, was the message that Jesus was speaking. Yes, we have a more full understanding and a fuller picture, but this was the beginning of what he began to teach. In verse 36, it says this, And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is looking, and he begins to see people, these crowds. If we look at the other synoptic gospels, large quantities of people were constantly following him because of the healings, because he was doing miracles with food. They were listening to his teaching. There's a whole myriad of reasons why there are people constantly there. But Jesus begins to look out at them and say, these people are lost. They are quite literally leaderless. And if we understand anything about a shepherd watching over sheep, if you just let these animals to themselves, they're a danger to themselves. And they are in danger of prey or predators coming in and wreaking havoc on them. So Jesus was seeing their physical needs. He was meeting them. He's healing them. But at this point, he begins to see beyond the physical. He's looking at something that would be spiritual. They were lost. Not just physically lost, but there was a spiritual disconnection, and that evoked a compassion. And while we are definitely called to do acts of mercy, 
to, to have compassion on people and, and social justices. Those things are, are right and good in their time, but the truth is there is something else that as Christians we bring that the rest of the world cannot. Any Buddhist, any Muslim, any atheist can do acts of mercy and social justice. Yes, that does point to a higher truth of God's heart, but we carry something so much deeper and rich that we have been left stewards of. And this idea with these people being leaderless, it also entails that the the spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they had failed in their responsibility to teach the people what they should be doing. Because at this point, in this juncture in the story of the gospel, they begin to push against Jesus. They begin to say, the, the, the power which you do these miracles is that of Satan. They didn't deny the fact that he was doing them, but they wanted to persecute him. They ultimately wanted to kill him and do away with him because of his teachings went against what they thought should be. So quite literally, they were without leadership, spiritually, physically, as a nation. They were being occupied by a foreign government, the Romans. So Jesus has compassion on them, begins to see eyes that are spiritual. And he turns to his disciples after looking on these people with compassion, and he says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he kind of throws out this analogy, if you will, a harvest. I think we get, if we've been around church for a while, we like, okay, he's, he's speaking of maybe what we call mission. But in that culture, this picture that he's painting would have had more meaning, I think, than it does today. We're not a society primarily driven and shaped by agriculture or or the harvest. But at this point, the harvest was at the core and heart of society because if you did not harvest what you had planted, the following year you would have nothing to eat. And that begins to affect every person who lives in your cities, in your culture, in your nation. It also had an idea, people understood that when it is harvest season, that this is something you deal with. Now, immediate, there is a need. This is something we do not put off. It's not something that, oh, we'll, we'll get to it when we have time or we feel like it, but this is something that we have a limited time that we need to deal with. It's also very hard work. It's not something that we just immediately go and Yeah, quickly harvest, take care of that one day. But basically, culture at that time, they would all shift. And during times of harvest, all families, many workers would go to this. And energy and time would be put into this to bring in the harvest. And if it was a good year, there'd be celebration because it would be for the betterment of that society and that culture. So with that in mind and kind of understanding the weight of which he is speaking, how do we deal with this idea of of mission, of of proclaiming this gospel, of recognizing people as a harvest. What is actually expected of us? So I think the first thing would be um, that we have to start with the premise of this. Have we we heard of the Great Commission? Who's heard that and knows immediately what that is? At the end of Matthew, it says that we're commanded to go in 
therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and his teaching, and to observe all his teachings and all that he commanded. So that's kind of like what most of us in church we point to as the Great Commission. What are we commanded to do as far as missions are? And if any of us are in Jesus, who gets a pass on this? Who is excluded or exempt? Yeah, absolutely. So if we start with that premise, we all have a responsibility with that. What is Jesus trying to teach us through this? And I highlighted four things that I think we can pull out in this short little description here. The first one is we need, Jesus wants us to see something. And it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. He stopped and he saw. So do we actually see people as souls? Yes, we see. I see you now, but do I stop and see the the deeper meanings of these things? At work, how do we view our coworkers? Do we see just physical need, or do we understand that there's a spiritual need? That there's something greater than what we see in the here and now and tangible going on? We're to stop, we're to look, we're to see. Do we view this world through the lens of eternity? Remember that Jesus' teaching said that the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, but the road is narrow that leads to life, and there's few people who will find that. Does that shape our understanding and, and on our hearts? Does that inform our thoughts? And second, number two, is we need to feel something. Jesus would have us feel something. It says he had compassion. And this word for compassion is a, is a deep, heavy meaning. It's a, it's a literal, visceral reaction to what he saw. Are we moved by what moved Jesus? Are we, are we moved for the sake of the loss? Are we moved for the eternity that certain people may be facing? Are we moved for lost souls, both, both locally in our families, in our workplace, in our community, but also globally? Do we look and have compassion for the things happening in China, the things happening in India? Do those really move us, or do is it something that we just look at and move on with our lives? So we're to see something. We're to feel something. And then there's something that we need to know. And what he wants us to know is this. That the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Know that you will not be lack of opportunities, but the disproportion is between the workers to the opportunities. That, that, that there's, there's something that we need to take seriously, that, that there are lost souls, and we need to have a care and concern, and know we are the primary modes by which Jesus has chosen to communicate this message. We are to know that this labor is a hard one. It's not something that we can just reap quickly. Many of us want quick solutions. 
We'd like to go out to our fruit trees, pick the apple, and be like, that's our harvest. It was clean, simple. But a harvest is something that we have to actually commit ourselves to. We have to follow through with. Not just try to reap things quickly, but are we playing the long game? Knowing that there are plenty of opportunities before us if we would see that. And then lastly, the last point is we need to do something. Verse 38 says this, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Kind of seems like a no-brainer, right? Pray. But do we actually actively participate in that? that? That idea of not just this quick toss-up prayer, but an idea of focused attention. We're to pray. We're to seek God. What's the descriptor in Scripture? Therefore, pray what? Earnestly. Like it actually matters. It's not out of convenience, but we're to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. We're actually praying to God, recognizing that he is the one who's actually in control. So it's not left up all on our own, but we can actually seek God that he would actually begin to compel people to go out. It says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And this idea of send out, the Greek word is a literal forcing out, to be compelled, to be driven out. And we think about it, oh, maybe he'll just stir up the hearts and minds of people to kind of do something. But the idea is we're to pray that God would not allow us to sit comfortably, but he'd actually force us out into this work. And when we begin to seek God and to pray, sometimes we will find that we may be the ones that are part of the solution for our petition. If we continue following this, how Matthew's laying out in chapter 10, it begins to deal with how they went out. They were to pray first, but eventually they were the ones that that were sent out. And I believe there's many in this room that maybe they are called to foreign missions. Maybe they are called to places and a people group. And we are to pray for them that God would stir those things and force them out. And realizing that when we begin to pray and seek, actually we might be held accountable to actually do something with that. But we're to begin with prayer. And it's interesting, if we look at any major revival or any outpouring of God or mighty work of God, most all will attest that it started in deep prayer. Not just people getting excited and running out without knowledge or something, but it started in deep, focused attention and prayer. So I think we'd be wise to listen to those things. So again, the four things I think we can see from there. We need to see. We need to look out at people. We need to have that compassion that Christ had, the recognizing the physical and the spiritual realities. And we need to know there's a harvest. There there are people, the realities of what that is, what the cost is, that there are opportunities should we choose to see them. And then we're to pray. Now, with, with all these things, it, it can be easy to feel condemned, 
recognizing, oh, I, I don't put a lot of time and I don't put a lot of precedence in my life in this. How, how should we, what, what hinders us from doing this? Um, talking with Angela over the last week, it's like we were talking with the idea, what, what are common things that we all face that would stop us from, from carrying on this message to, to have enough compassion for people to tell them the truth and message of the kingdom, to allow that to actually shape every part of our life. And so I came up with a handful of things that I think are just common. They're, it's not an exhaustive list, but I think it would be wise to look and flesh out some pitfalls that we all fall into. Instead of just saying, hey, here's the commands, just go. But I think there's some warnings that we need to understand, some things that we might miss some misunderstandings of what God has actually told us to do. And the first one I'd say is compartmentalization, meaning this. Church and God is in this box. My life and work is in this box. My hobbies are in this box. That idea and nothing will intersect or never the two shall touch or meet. We live segmented lives where Church is a separate thing, but that's never what the message of the kingdom was. This is an all-inclusive thing. And there, this goes both ways in not saying that everything we have to do, everything we do in life has to be Christian content. How does an architect design a Christian building? How does a code designer design Christian code? But the more true is that when we are in the kingdom of God and God has regenerated us, that whatever we do, when we view through the lens of doing it for the glory and honor of God, that's what we're created to do. There are no areas that do not touch. And sometimes we just naturally section these things off. And that's not how we were intended or created that's not the purpose we were created for, but that everything, that, that our art, that our music, that everything we do, whether explicitly Christian content, brings glory to God. And, and there's this other idea in the church that the gospel's for these hired pastors. Or if I want to be in ministry, the pinnacle is when you have become a pastor and you get paid for it and you have a church. But that's, that's not the purpose of the, the church or the kingdom but that the church and the leaders are, in it are to equip and teach people to go out and begin to actually to live this, to be the bearers of this message. So compartmentalization. And one, one more thing on that idea is, I see it goes both ways, but sometimes when we begin to view our work, maybe our education, our hobbies, things of beauty, would we begin to see them and be awed by God in them? Why do we view our education? Oh, that's just something that's done. It's numbers. Math is purely numbers. Or, or do we begin to see that an infinite God made these things? In, in, in the simplistic things of life, we can begin to see God and what he's doing and his plan, and it will increase longings and desires for him. You know, what in your life maybe do you have sectioned off where you don't allow God or don't view things through the lens of God and how he wants to look for, work through them 
and be shown through these things. The second thing is distraction. I think that's probably one of the more predominant things in our culture that hinders us, is the idea of we are distracted. So the author Aldous Huxley in the 1930s wrote a book called A Brave New World. Has anybody read the book through College Lit? And he speaks of this kind of utopian or dystopian society in the future that basically lives for, for pleasure. That, that everything, they have devices and, and are constantly feeding themselves from one experience to the next. And he says this, that man has almost an infinite hap- appetite for distraction. That we will, are easily conned into wasting our time and what adds no value to our lives. I'm guilty of that, like continuously. Author Tony Rinke said this, we are creatures shaped by what grabs our attention and what grabs our attention and what grabs our attention becomes our objective and subjective reality. This idea that we are formed by what we give our time and centered a focus on. That begins to shape what we care about. That begins to shape how we put our finances. Our, and it begins to shape how we live, what we speak, what we do, how we think. And mankind functions in a way that what we put our attention to, we will adore. And that's something that's a bit of a discipline. So focused attention leads to adoration. I mean, think about things in your life, something that you actually love. That may, not, may or may not be a bad thing, but when you begin to think about that continuously, it only increases your desires and affections for those things. So we have to be disciplined to focus and give time for things that actually matter. And see, we're, we're creatures that were created to see spectacles, to long to be awed, to long to be wowed, to long to enjoy work, long to enjoy beauty. But our problem is when those ordered loves or affections become disordered, when those begin to take the seat and throne above, what, above who God is. I mean, we can take many examples. Ideas of music. I love to play music. But if I spend all my time and attention and focus in music and gear and giving no time to God, no time and focus attention to prayer, where will my affections lie? Something that is actually a good thing. Actually, that is commanded, that God's gifted people and gave, given to us to enjoy. But when that begins to take the seat the main, of main prominence, our loves and desires become disordered to where they truly should be. So what are we spending our time pursuing? Are we giving time and thought to God's word, to the realities of what we've been called to? And lastly, has the gospel actually transformed us? Has the implications of what Jesus has done for you and the weight of that actually done anything that is meaning and worthwhile in your life without begins to take a hold and begins to outflow from it? 
deep down inside, I think if something truly regenerate happens, there will be fruit or evidence of that. And so it's a hard question, but I think it's a good question. Has the gospel transformed us at this message? Has Christianity really done anything worthwhile and lasting in our lives? And sometimes I think we go through seasons where we're dry, maybe not. But that's part of the glorious story of the gospel because when we reach those points, it's not, oh, I failed miserably. Well, we have, but we have a gracious Father who understands that and begin to preach the gospel to ourselves saying, God, I need help. Help me focus my attention. We're not under condemnation for not living this way, but we can use the gospel to speak to us, to help and shape us. So as we end, I'd like you guys to just kind of think of these things. What, what's the practical? We can, we can talk about this. We can have frameworks and the theology of it, but eventually we have to begin to partake in this. How can we begin to have eyes that see? How can we begin to pray? It's like to challenge you that, that where God has placed you, right now, today, your family, your friends, where you work, the circles you run in, do you have eyes to see those people in the way that Jesus is describing? And do we begin to have concern and compassion and will we actively begin to pray? To do something. These are the bare minimum requirements. We haven't even talked about how we do this or methods or modes, but this is something that we just need to begin. This is, this is the initiation of this. This is the bare minimum requirement of anybody in this room to be shaped by this. And as we close, it's easy to to maybe we'll sing a song and walk out of the room completely unchanged, but I think it's good to begin to model obedience of what we see laid forth in Scripture. So I think it would be wise if we actually take this time and begin to pray. Yes, I know this is an awkward time, and usually when somebody from the stage says, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to get in groups and we're going to pray, but I think we should give the space, we should give the weight of what is being communicated and respond to that in action. So if we would, would we break up into groups, look, turn to people around you, and we're just going to pray. Maybe there's somebody that you know specifically that comes to mind that is on your heart that you want to pray for. Maybe there are people in your work. If, if we are all about Jesus in this community, and we want to be, and we want to see the community impacted, will we just begin to seek God and humbly be inconvenienced by praying with people? So I'm going to pray for us, and then if you would, let's just spend a little bit of time. Let's, let's seek God. It's not the most comfortable thing, but I think when we begin to give space and by action showing that, hey God, we, we need you. We want to respond 
in obedience to you because of what you have done for us. We want to be wise stewards of that. So let's pray. God, you know our hearts, and you know our minds. God, you know that we are weak, and we get distracted. We put things before us and dwell on things in thought and mind that should not be there. God, would you stir up passions for the lost? Would you allow us to see this community, this city, this world as that harvest that you speak of? Help us to respond as obedient servants. In your precious name, amen.